John chapter 10, we've come as far as verse 31, where it says, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because thou makest, um, thou being a man makest thyself equal to God. And Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. If he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, then believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on him there. So we have this remarkable close to, in John's gospel, the public ministry of Jesus Christ. Um, Feast of Tabernacles and so forth. And then we come to the Feast of Dedication in verse 22. And that's our context here, Hanukkah, Feast of Lights. And remarkably, as John wraps it up, there's just a lot of facets. There's a whole idea of the miraculous. There's the whole idea of Christ being sanctified. The whole idea of them taking up stones from the temple to stone the temple, as it were. There's the whole picture of how this wraps up and it is related to you and I in a wonderful way. And when the Lord is done here and he departs, he doesn't come to Jerusalem again till Palm Sunday. So this is, he ties up his public ministry in a very interesting way here in John's gospel. He had said that himself, I and the Father are one, in verse 30, and the Jews then took up stones to stone him. So people today may say that Jesus never claimed to be God, but the religious Jews who knew the language and heard what he said were, were convinced that he was claiming deity. So don't anybody tell you that. These were the guys that were there. And it says they took up stones to stone him. They're angry. They're much like Saul of Tarsus. When you can't win an argument, you just put somebody to death. And, uh, you know, the Romans had taken the right away from the Jews to execute the death sentence because it was their jurisdiction, except, Josephus says, in specific situations in the temple precincts, if somebody desecrated the temple. So they're trying to push this 
in that way. But then, even if the Jews were going to exercise the death sentence in the temple context, they had to have a fair trial before they did it. So here, this is just anger. This is just a mob. This is the second, this is the third time that they were going to stone him. And now they're doing it again. And Jesus is going to relate to them and answer their question on the grounds they understand. So his first question is, you know, many good works have I showed you from my father. And for which of those works do you stone me? John says that he specifically wrote the things that he did, John. He, 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 he said many signs Jesus did, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that you might have life through his name. So we have particularly, and John is laid before us, the healing of the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda that had been crippled for 38 years. Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, tells him to take up his bed and go home. And then everything, all the repercussions from that with the religious community. And then in chapter 9, we have Jesus healing the man that was born blind. Same thing on the Sabbath. Locking horns with the religious community. <clears throat> he says, you're going to stone me for one of these? Or are you going to stone me for opening the eyes of the blind, cleansing lepers, opening the ears of the deaf, the tongue of the dumb? Are you going to stone me because I made the lame walk? Are you going to stone me because I raised the dead and cleansed lepers? Are you going to stone me because I fed your hungry multitudes? For which of these things are you going to stone me? And of course, they have no answer for that. So they come back and they say to him, the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou, being a man, makest thyself more or equal with God. More remarkable thing that they hadn't come to realize yet is that God made himself a man. They're going to stone him because he says, you're a man who makes himself God. They didn't realize who they were talking to, the God-man standing there in front of them. And he answers them now in a, in a context and in a way, there's a Jewish argument here. The Pharisees would go back and forth like this and he immediately pins them down. It doesn't mean a whole lot to you and I, but you know, if it helps that we kind of understand where he goes with this and there are parts of it that are very relative to us. Jesus answered them now, we're gonna stone you because you makest thyself God. Is it not written, there's a perfect tense there, is it not written, has been written, and stands written today? Notice he doesn't say in our law, he says in your law, I said, ye are gods. If he, the Lord, called them gods, unto whom, notice the word of God came, which he tells us is written, the word of God came, and the scripture wonderfully cannot be broken. Then say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified, 
and sent into the world, thou blasphemest because I said, I am the son of God. So he says to them, look, in your law, these things are written in Exodus chapter 20. I'm sorry, chapter 20, 21. It says, then his master, the servant, shall bring him unto the judges, the Elohim. And he shall also bring him to the door, unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So there the judges are called the Elohim. That's the word for God in the Old Testament, used 2,000 times, several times of men. In chapter 22 in Exodus, it says, if the thief be found not, there's an accusation about stealing, then the master of the house shall be brought unto the judges, to the Elohim, to see whether he have put his hand into his neighbor's goods. For all manner of trespass, whether it be for an ox or an ass or sheep or raiment, or for any manner of lost thing, which another shall challenge to be his, the cause of both parties shall come to the judges, the Elohim, and whom the judges, the Elohim, shall condemn, he shall pay double to his neighbor. So it sets the stage there in Exodus in regards to calling men God, Elohim, and Jesus probably referring to then Psalm 82, where it says, how long will you judge unjustly and accept per the persons of the wicked? He says, aren't you supposed to take care of the poor and of the needy and so forth? Uh, they know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, Elohim, and all of you are children of the Most High, but... You shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, and so forth. So in Psalm 82, verse 6, makes reference to what God established in the law. And the problem there was the judges of Israel, different than the kings and the priests, the judges were to rule Israel strictly by the written word of God. And that's why they were called Elohim in places, because the judgment they handed down was the judgment of God. So they were called Elohim. So Jesus says to these guys, you're telling me that I committed blasphemy. And he said, is it not written, the written word, in your law, I said, Jehovah said, ye are gods, you are Elohim. And you want to stone me because I, you say, I make myself God. He said, ye are gods. And if he called them gods unto whom the word of God came, that's how they exercised their office as a judge, supposedly. And wonderfully, the scripture cannot be broken Say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. So they're kind of all standing there with the stones in their hands at this point in time. He just opened their own scripture to take away this 
charge of blasphemy. And these are Pharisees. They take their pride in the word of God. He said, it's your own word. And I wonderfully, Jesus says here, the scripture is something that's written. Aren't you glad this morning? If you have a copy in your hand. You should get a real copy, by the way. You should get a book. You get a large solar flare. This is going to be gone. This ain't. This ain't going to go off. Get yourself a book. He says, written in your law that you are God's. If, if, if God Almighty used that word and wrote it down in scripture of the judges in Israel, that they were God's, and if that's true, and the scripture cannot be broken, don't you love that? The scripture cannot be broken. He says, then are you accusing me whom God hath sanctified and sent into the world that I'm committing blasphemy because I say I'm the son of God? It's such an interesting picture. First of all, understand this is the feast of dedication, Hanukkah, the feast of lights. And they're taking up stones to stone him from the temple where the work is being done. Jesus had said in chapter 2, verse 19, they were asking for a sign. He said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in two days, three days. And John said, now when that first happened, we didn't understand what he was talking about. But after he rose, we understood he was talking about the temple of his body. So he says here, I'm the one who the Father has sanctified. It's the only time that word is used of Jesus anywhere. It means dedicated. I'm the temple that was dedicated by the Father. And then he says, and then sent into, not sent to, sent into the world. There's a difference. Both sanctified and sent are eridus tense or historical realities. What it's telling us is before the incarnation in the eternal counsels of God, that Jesus at that point was set apart before he was ever born, and he was sent into, not just to, into the world of mankind for God's purposes. Jesus he says that's unchanging. You think that's blasphemy? And wonderfully, you know, we look at this. For you and I, we need to realize <clears throat> that, that Jesus' own perspective of the scripture is that it's written, it's the word of God, and that it cannot be broken. Look, that's wonderful. Look over verses 28, 29. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Never, ever. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of the Father's hand, and the Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus doesn't say it's unlawful to break the Scripture. That was a different idea. He says the Scripture itself stands. It's not subjective, it's objective. The Scripture cannot be broken. It's an impossibility. He said heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my word, every jot and every tittle is going to go on into eternity. Not, none of it's going to pass away. And here he says the scripture cannot be broken. 
that tells us that we're sons and daughters of the Most High God. That says the Lord himself is going to descend with a shout, the voice of God, the angel and the trump of God. And then we which are alive and believe in Christ are going to be caught up together in the air to meet him in the air. So comfort one another with these words because the scripture cannot be broken. Look, and people have always tried to do that. I mean, Diocletian, Rome itself wanted to crush the word. Diocletian, one of the most vile Caesars, makes it his goal to stamp out the word of God. Diocletian's gone. Here we are this morning. Voltaire determined the word of God was useless. And he said within a, within a, within a hundred years, this book is going to be gone and nobody's going to remember. And within a hundred years, Voltaire was dead and his house was the distribution center for the Geneva Bible. <laughs> Look, it's, that's the same story all the time. The communists have tried to stamp out the word of God, but it cannot be broken. One of the largest and fast growing churches in the world is in communist China. Fastest growing church in the world today, Iran. The word of God cannot be broken. And we're surrounded with a liberal culture that either wants to make the word of God relative to its own low standards and accuse us of not knowing what it says, or they want to tear it up and burn it and get rid of it altogether. But the scripture, which cannot be broken, said in the last days, this is what men are going to do. So their attitude is fulfilling the word of God, which cannot be broken. And as their world frays and becomes threadbare, here you and I are, wonderfully, with freedom to pick up the scripture, the written word of God, and know all else may be going insane around us. But one thing we can know for sure is the scripture cannot be broken. Is that wonderful? The scripture cannot be broken. And, and understand this crescendo in this movement. The Lord wants our faith, not faith, you know, founded on miracles. He wants our faith founded on the word of God. He doesn't want our foundation to be on the miraculous. Is there a miraculous? Of course there is. Do I believe in the miraculous? Of course I do. Here, I'm standing here. But I mean, do I believe in miracles? Yeah. Do I see them as much as I'd like to? No. Do I wish I did? Yeah. Is that the foundation of my faith? No. There have been seasons through the history of God's people when there are miracles. The children of Israel coming out of Egypt, incredible series of miracles that brought about a great movement of God to deliver them and bring them out. Then 40 years later, a series of remarkable miracles to bring them into Canaan and into the promised land. Then with Elijah and Elisha, an incredible series of miracles to bring back people who had gone into apostasy and turned away from the Lord. In the book of Daniel, we have several miracles 
Now when Christ shows up on the scene, there's miracles, and they're incredible. And Jesus says to them, Then began he to upbraid the cities, wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Zidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and in ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Zidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, because it was his headquarters in Galilee, you shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have, repent, uh, it would have remained until this day. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. Are there miracles? Of course there are. And they show up again rem remarkably in the days of Christ. The apostles' ministry. Then it tapers off again. There are waves of them. There is another wave of them coming in the not-too-distant future when a trumpet blows and all of us disappear. That's the miracle I want to see, right? Yeah, me and you. The rest of them can stay here. It's, it's, too, it's too late. <laughs> and, and then, you know, when we're gone, there's the, the ministry of the two prophets outside of Jerusalem. Miraculous people being saved. There's the ministry of the Antichrist and the false prophet. Miraculous. Like the magicians in Egypt turned water to blood and reproduced the miracles that Moses was doing. So miracles in themselves are not the credentials for you and I to base our faith on. And Jesus is telling them here those things bore witness to what he was and what he was saying. And he said, you've got this in your law. You put up with this, and then you're going to tell me, he says, say of him whom the Father hath sanctified, consecrated, dedicated, and sent into, not just to, into the world, you're going to say, thou blasphemous, because I am the Son of God? He's not even saying, I am God, I'm the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, then believe me not. But if I do, if I'm doing these mighty works, woe unto you, Chorazin, woe unto you, Capernaum. If I do, though you believe not me... Believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and that I am him. If you are not believing, present tense, you're not willing to do that, you're not believing what I say. Now, by the way, that tells us that miracles are not necessary to come to faith. Because what he says is the problem is you're not listening to what I'm saying and his word is life. But he said, if you're not going to do that, then believe is an imperative, eritus. You must come to faith. You must, that rests upon these works. But the problem then and now is, if the heart is not open to the spiritual, to the Lord Jesus, then no amount of evidence 
can be convincing. One of the Puritans said that the hearts of these men is like the pupil of the eye. The more light you shine into it, the more it constricts. And that's what they're doing here as we look at them, sadly. And Jesus says, you know, if you don't believe me, if you're not going to do that, then believe the works. You must then believe these miracles and understand that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And for that, it says, therefore, because he said that, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. They sought again is an imperfect tense. They began to and continued to seek to put him to death. That's what they wanted to do. He escaped out of their hands. It's the only time in the New Testament that phrase is used. It doesn't tell us what you and I want to know. We want to know, did he disappear? Did he make them all blind? Yeah, you know, like, like uh, you know, in Sodom. Uh, what did he do? It doesn't tell us what he did. Were they stunned by his argument about blasphemy? He just ran that right out of the court. The, the, the bottom line is he passed out of their miss because it was not his hour. His hour was going to be three months after this on the Passover, not on Hanukkah. And he came into the world to be crucified, not stoned to death. And the amount, the, the amount of confidence he had stepping through this crowd that was now again trying to bring about his demise, it slowed him down not a bit. He departs from them, it says. And verse 40, it says, he went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle. Isn't that remarkable? But all things that John spake of this man were true. And many believed on there. So he takes them away to Pyrea, this area where John the Baptist was first baptizing. And you think of the memories that were there. Peter, James, John, and probably the majority of the apostles, the disciples, had been followers of John the Baptist. And one day they saw John the Baptist kind of stunned. I mean, he had stood up to these same religious leaders. They remember him saying, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. There's no fear in him, but this one then comes to be baptized. He, he was stunned. He, he said, I have need to be baptized of you. No doubt they remember that. Jesus suffered to be so now that we might fulfill all righteousness. And this is where Jesus, when he takes his disciples back there now, is he thinking of these? This is where his ministry began in a sense, where he was baptized. Comes up out of the water and the spirit descends on him. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free, to preach the good news and so forth. What memories were there? What memories 
were there for the disciples as they remember John pointing his finger and say, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said that made him the greatest prophet that had ever lived, greater than any man that had ever lived. Of all those born among women, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Plato, Alexander the Great, none of them had a message as powerful and necessary as John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, which made him the greatest of the prophets. In the Old Testament, they were longing to see the one he could point his finger at. And by the way, John the Baptist wasn't afraid, though multitudes came, to minister to two people. He didn't have any miracles. He had the word. And he said to James and John, there he is. He ministered to two of them. There's the one that takes away the sin of the world. They remembered him saying, you know, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. He must increase. I must decrease. They remembered him saying the God, that the Father has not put the Spirit upon him by measure. What happens here is going to be immeasurable. No doubt they remembered these things. And sometimes there's a place we need to go to. Sometime for every one of us, maybe an old prayer closet, maybe somewhere we used to sit, maybe you know, just a place where we remember the Lord ministered to our heart, or maybe the place where we got saved. It's good to have those, not necessary, but it's good to have those places. So you can imagine what these days with the disciples are like when they're out now outside of this antagonism of Jerusalem and there's fellowship, how remarkable it must have been. And it says he abode there. He's gonna come up to Bethany, not to Jerusalem. Lazarus will be raised, and then 1154 says he goes to a village called Ephraim, again, outside of Jerusalem. He doesn't come back to Jerusalem until Palm Sunday. So there's something preparatory. There's good medicine in all of this as he's spending time alone with them. And then look what it says. It says, many resorted unto him, probably of Jerusalem, of Judea, some of Galilee that heard he was there. People come to him. And as they came, they said, there's an imperfect tense, they started to say, and they kept saying, they kept saying this, you know, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. John was still bearing witness two years after he was dead. John is still bearing fruit post-mortem. John still has a ministry because of his commitment to the word of God. Didn't do any miracles. We can't put all the emphasis there because Jesus didn't. We're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, which is the word of God. Nobody's born again by miracles. I'm so thankful if God touches a human body, if he does something, and we could look around personally and think, wow, Lord, that was you. But here it says, they really took note. John, whom they followed, multitudes, 
he did no miracles. He drew the crowds with his message, with the word of God. But all things that John spake of this man were true. And then it says, and many, notice, believed on him there is emphatic. It's, it says many believed on him there, in that place. That's where they believed, in great contrast to Jerusalem. That's the idea, and that's why it's written that way. So, you know, you look at this and you think, this is just an incredible thing. You know, we appreciate miracles, and we thank them when that happens, but we should thank him more for his word. And his word that tells us that he was born in Bethlehem, and he walked among us, and he died on the cross in our place, and he rose the third day. Those are miracles. And then he ascended into heaven, miraculous. That he's the right hand of the Father who ever makes intercession for us, miraculous. That he's coming again like a thief in the night to get us out of here. That's miraculous. That's the miracle I'm looking for, me and you. <laughs> but just think in this picture as we look at it, you know, the great hope is on this truth about Jesus Christ. And we can look at it and think, what's, what, what will our epitaph be? What will it be? John the Baptist has been dead two years, but he's still speaking. And as they're looking, what he said is still bearing fruit. What he said of this man is all true. We are doing more for our generation and the next generation when we speak the truth of Christ in love than all the other things we might do. One of the Puritans said, we set in motion streams flowing that are gonna reach the next generation and the generation after it. That's why we're here this morning. What is the legacy you've left to your kids in the epitaph? Look, Solomon, writing the book of Proverbs, says, Son, I'm telling you the things I heard from my father. That meant when David was teaching Solomon, he was speaking to his grandchildren as well. It's unavoidable. If all we leave our kids is something that a lawyer can settle, we haven't left them anything at all because it's all gonna pass away. It's all gonna pass away. But if what we share is from our hearts and it's about our savior and about his salvation, about what he's done, no miracles, but everything dad said was true. Everything my brother said were true. Just think of the epitaph. Wouldn't it be great to have that on your tombstone? If the Lord tarries, I don't expect him to, but all things that he said about Jesus were true. That'd be a great thing to have written on the stone, wouldn't it? No, but just me. Okay, it'd be great on my stone. <laughs> One said he's planting vineyards that will refresh those after us if we share the things we know about Christ. And as they stand at our grave, or they go to meet at familiar places where there are great memories where we gathered. Are they gonna say, well, you know, 
grandpa, great grandpa, dad, my brother, my mom, my sister, they didn't do any miracles. They didn't have any credentials. They weren't a PhD. They didn't run a successful corporation. They didn't have any plaques on their wall. They were never on television. But all things that they said about Jesus were true. Imagine that. Because when we stand in glory, all of our credentials and certificates are going to be blown away in the wind. When we stand in glory, there's only one there that gets praise and glory, and it ain't you with your PhD. All of that becomes nothing. And we look, you know, I admire someone who, who accomplishes here in the world and gives the glory to Jesus. But one day, the greatest truth is everything. We're standing there looking at the lamb with the marks of slaughter upon him. Everything they said about this man was true. When the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren gather to Familiar places when they sit at a Thanksgiving dinner at a table together. Will they be able to say of you, there's nothing phenomenal. You know, he was such a strange guy. There were no miracles. They just, uh, you could hardly read, you know, this is, but Everything he said about Jesus was true. That is for you and I. We have that, you know, legacy as much as John the Baptist and as much as anyone else. And it's as important to share it with one and two as it is to share it with a crowd. John the Baptist said, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness, all I am. And he spoke to the two disciples and said, there's this, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Here, he's dead two years, and they're saying, you know, everything. John didn't do any miracles, but everything he said about this man was true. Heaven's going to be filled with that. Multitudes beyond imagination are going to be looking at each other and say, everything we heard about him was true. Imagine. So I encourage you today, look, if you're here and you don't know Christ, understand this. Even if miracles were happening here, if you're not willing to listen to his word, there's no guarantee at all that miracles would change you. And miracles, the Antichrist is going to do them. The sorcerers in Egypt did them. Miracles can be phony. They can be, you know, misguiding. But the word of God cannot be broken. The scripture stands now just like Jesus said that it did then. And if you don't know Christ today, the scripture says if you're willing to repent of your sins, to do a you know, metanoia, change the mind, do a U-turn, your, your life's going nowhere, you're tired of it, you've thought about suicide, addictions haunting you, pornography, whatever, your, your life is headed away from God and you're running out of gas, you're tired and you're empty, Jesus says repent, that is make a U-turn, turn your direction and come back, come to him. And if you do that, you'll have eternal life and the scripture cannot be broken. 
So we're going to have the mus musicians come. We'll sing the last song. I would say this to you. If you have never come to Christ, this is the day. The Bible says this is the day that the Lord has made. It says today is the acceptable day of salvation. Do you have to know that? That has to be in your heart. And, and the question will be, are you willing to listen and believe? Because he'll speak to you. And he doesn't speak English or Spanish or Russian or French. He speaks a heart language that every nationality in the world hears just as clearly. And no one will ever be able to say, I didn't hear and I didn't understand. And what he's going to talk to you about today is his love. That he came into the world to save you. That God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For the rest of us, let's just realize in these last hours the power of what we have to say. You know, David says, Lord, sustain me in my old age that I might tell the next generation about your mercy and about your love. Let's stand. Let's pray together. <clears throat> so I'm going to pray for us as believers. Listen, please, if you're here and you don't know Christ, I'm going to play, pray for you as well. And as we sing this last song, if you want to get saved, we're going to ask you to get out of your seat and come down and stand right here in front of everybody. We're never afraid to sin in front of everybody. No, you come and accept Jesus in front of everybody. He said, if you're willing to confess me before men, if you're willing to do that, I'll confess you before my father and all the angels in heaven. So if that's you this morning, we're going to ask you to come. We want to give you a Bible, some literature. We don't want your email. We don't want your phone number. We don't want nothing from you. We want everything for you because he saved such as us. And if I'm in, anybody can get in. <clears throat> so you come. Let's bow our hearts. Lord, I know you've overheard, Lord, and, and help us, Lord, just to remember the power of your word, Lord, that it's seed that is sown in human hearts, that it endures the ages, Lord, that it cannot be broken. Lord, help us in the simplest way with one or two of our kids or our grandkids to do that, with one of our neighbors, one or two people we work with or go to school with. Help us just to point and say, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Lord, we do pray for any that are here who have never come. Lord, you know that. It says you add to the church daily such as should be saved. Lord, you will speak to their hearts. You will draw them into your arms of love and forgiveness. Only you can do that, Lord. We're, we're content to leave that in your hand. <clears throat> we pray as we lift our voices and our hearts, Lord, that this would be a blessing for you, Lord Jesus. We love you, and we lift this song corporately as a corporate prayer. Lord Jesus, amen.